Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We have a very special guest today here in the studio. He is Bishop Edward L. Salmon, Jr., who is the 19th Dean of Neshota House Theological Seminary and also the 13th Bishop of South Carolina in the Anglican tradition. Welcome, Bishop Salmon, to Beeson and to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Now, we've had some connection between Beeson and Neshota House over the years with some different students and exchanges, and I'm wondering if you would tell us what is Neshota House, a little bit about its history and its mission. Indeed. Well, Neshota House is a seminary related to the Episcopal Church. And when I say related, I mean we have a standalone board of trustees, and the seminary is not owned by the by the church. Uh, it was founded in 1842 mm. uh, when uh, Bishop Kemper and two seminarians from General Seminary uh, came out to the wilderness in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, purpose of doing that was in 1842, it was difficult to get Anglican clergy out into the wilderness, mm. and I might say that in 2014, it's sometimes difficult to get Anglican clergy uh, out yeah. into the uh, wilderness or the Midwest as opposed to the uh, seacoast, uh, but uh, they established a seminary there, and it was called The Mission, uh, and mm. so it's uh, a seminary whose goal is the mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, of course, in that part of the world, there were a significant number of Indians. And uh, the first building in the Shota House uh, was called the Fort uh, because it was indeed uh, in, the, uh, in the wilderness. Uh, and uh, the, the seminary has had a faithful tradition now for 172 years to train a clergy and priests for the, uh, for the church. I might say that uh, its tradition is what we call a Benedictine tradition. Mm. We uh, follow the rule of St. Benedict, which uh, means that we worship every day, uh, morning and afternoon. We start the day with morning prayer, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, followed by the Eucharist. And then on uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 4.30, we have sung Evensong. Then on Thursday, we reverse that, and uh, at 8 o'clock, we have sung matins, sung morning prayer. And then on Thursday afternoon at 4.30, a said evening prayer. And then at 5 o'clock, uh, a sung Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And then we go back uh, Saturday to uh, the, the old schedule. I mean, on Friday, the, the regular schedule, no even song on Friday afternoon, just said evening prayer. And we worship the same on Saturday, and but no Sunday morning service because all of our seminarians, we uh, expect, are out working in the, uh, in the parishes. But when I say a Benedictine rule, worship is first, then uh, study, uh, and then work. Uh, Everybody there works. Uh, I like to help at noon and wait on tables. Mm. Uh, And one of the things that that work does, I think, is is it uh, uh, offers the possibility for a sense of humility that we all serve each other uh, as our Lord served us. And so the seminary f- follows that rule uh, in terms of what we would call a formation. Yeah. Uh, we believe that what we do forms what we are. Now, you're very, uh, maybe not unique, but rare in the sense that you actually 
do theological education in community. You live together. Yes, we live together. We have breakfast and lunch together. Uh, We don't have the evening meal together, but we eat uh, as a seminary, faculty and students, and administration, breakfast and lunch. Uh, And that gives, again, a a different kind of teaching relationship. Uh, We have a marvelous faculty there, uh, but that faculty lives with the students. We all live together, uh, and that that gives a relational system that Mm -hmm. undergirds uh, the theology that we teach. You know, some people, when we hear Benedictine, we think of the Roman Catholic tradition, and of course there is a very vibrant Benedictine order and tradition uh, in Roman Catholicism, but it's not exclusive to Roman Catholicism. No, no, it is not. We have a Benedictine house at Three Rivers, Michigan. There are Benedictine monastics in the Anglican Church. Now, your your school, Nashota House, is known as a seminary in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Tell us what that term means. Well, let me suggest this to you. I, I grew up in the uh, church in Natchez, Mississippi, and uh, that uh, church would have been what you might call the broad church in Anglicanism. It was not an Anglo-Catholic church. Uh, we had Holy Communion every Sunday morning at 730, uh, then a children's service, and then at 11 o'clock uh, we had morning prayer and sermon except on the first Sunday of the month when that was Holy Communion. Uh, I remembered uh, particularly because my uh, family would always go to the early Eucharist uh, and then go back for morning prayer uh, at 11 o'clock. And then on the first Sunday, uh, they would stay through the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church. They would not stay for communion because they had already received uh, communion. Uh, And... um, and uh, but uh, the Eucharist uh, was was not the central service. It was uh, one of the main liturgies of of the church. In the Anglo-Catholic tradition, it is Eucharistic centered, uh, and so uh, every day uh, at Nashota House, the Holy Eucharist is uh, is celebrated, uh, and then um, it also has something to say about f- form. Uh, there are kinds of extreme ritualism. Uh, and then there is uh, what I call just r- ritualism within the Anglican Church itself. For instance, in the church that I grew up in, I never saw a bishop wear a cope and mitre. Mm-hmm. Uh, bishop Gray always wore a black rochet and shamir. Uh, I never saw a black, I mean, a red rochet and shamir until the bishops went to Lambeth one time, and I think the Americans started wearing uh, red as opposed to uh uh, black. Now, so the, say that term again. The Rochet and Shamir. What is that? Well, it's a, a it's like a white surplice, uh, and then a red uh, kind of academic garment over okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, except in the uh, middle and low church, it was black. As the church moved along uh, with the Oxford movement, uh, we, it uh, began to look uh, towards the Eucharistically centered church and the vestments began to change. Uh, For instance, when I was in my first parish, uh, when I was ordained priest in uh, 1961, uh, I wore a surplice and stole. Mm -hmm. Uh, The lovely lady who was the chairman of our altar guild had been the Altergill chairman at the Church of the Ascension in Chicago. Mm. And I remember her saying to me, Father, uh, now that you're ordained, you'll have to wear a chasuble. And she said, she was 82 years old, she said, I'll make them for you. Oh. And she made the most beautiful set of silk chasubles 
all the four colors for me uh, that I have to this day. Uh, and when the day comes that I can't use them, I will pass them on uh, to someone else. So at Neshota House, uh, we wear the full vestments uh, for the Eucharist. Uh, when I was bishop, I wore a Rochet and Shamir in many parishes. Mm-hmm. I wore a Cope and Mita in others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the ritual in Anglo-Catholicism is, is different. Uh, it is Eucharistically centered but it does not eliminate the word. I wonder if you'd respond to a comment that was made by someone I think we both know who said to me, not just necessarily with reference to the Episcopal Church, but in generally, we're too sacramentalized and not enough evangelized. Well, I would say that it's possible for anything uh, to get out of balance. One of the things about uh, uh, this uh, fallen world that we live in uh, is it's not difficult for sinners to move in one direction or another. If you think about the history of the church, uh, you can think about uh, ways where the uh, the church has uh, has has lost its way. Uh, I think that uh, there is no reason in the world uh, for a, a Eucharist uh, not to be uh, uh, missionary and evangelistic at the same time. In fact, it is a marvelous opportunity uh, for that. Uh, but if someone begins to use uh, the Eucharist just simply as a methodology, that that's the way to do things, uh, and forgets that it is also a, a part of the mission of the church, uh, and that uh, strong proclamation is required in that setting. But I think it's possible to distort anything. Sure. And may I say, having done it, I can testify <laughs> to that. <laughs> I like the way you have the pattern of morning prayer followed by the Eucharist, the Lord's Table. Because when when the Reformers were uh, leading the church in some new directions, they always emphasized the coherence of word and table. Right. These were not two separate entities. They were meant to be integral. And it seems you've hit on a way of doing that in community. That's very powerful. Well, I, I believe that it is. And I think when you begin to think about distortion, uh, distortion can go in both directions. Uh, people can become mechanical about the sacraments. Several months ago, happened to be in a, uh, in a congregation as I was traveling along, and I, I, I participated in a Eucharist that, I, that felt like it was said by rote. It was said so fast uh, without what I would call power. Uh, it was just something to do. And so it's possible to distort uh, the Eucharist. In terms of preaching, it's possible to uh, take preaching instead of uh, in, on our knees asking God to touch us inwardly, deeply, uh, to proclaim to us so that we can proclaim to others. Uh, we can use preaching as a means to getting people to do what we want them to do. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think uh, one of the difficulties that we have is regardless of which side of the fence you're on, we have sinners debating sinners uh, <laughs> about which uh, methodology to use. Yeah. Uh, the facts of the matter are we all both need to repent yeah. and look at the way that it's possible to distort the good. And learn from one another. And learn from one yeah. another, Absolutely. Now, we've talked a little bit about the term Catholic, especially in the Anglo-Catholic sense of the term. What about the word evangelical? Uh, Now, Beeson calls itself an evangelical interdenominational school. It's a word you hear in a lot of different contexts. Some denominations call themselves evangelical. Uh, How would you relate to that word? Well, uh, when I I hear the word evangelical, uh, I... 
I hear enthusiasm about the person of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, which is the source of life and saving, the source of grace uh, and God's love. Uh, and so uh, not to be uh, an evangelist, to me, would be unthinkable as a priest or bishop in the, uh, in the church. Uh, I think that we can uh, begin to use that word to compartmentalize it uh, in a way so that we see a group in terms of its behaviors this way, not like me and, and, and otherwise. But I think it's the same issue uh, anywhere you go. It's possible to distort mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. and to lose the real power of words. The ownership of words is a big deal. Right. And you become sort of a sectarian Paul's problem in 1 Corinthians, right? I belong right. to this, I belong to that. And another group, I belong to Christ, which was probably just a way of boasting, I'm I'm holier than you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm uh, preaching for three days this week at the cathedral, and uh, one of the things that, one of the passages that I'm going to use is the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, uh, the Lord's Supper, where the disciples began to debate who is the greatest. Yeah. And so one of the things that you see oftentimes in the controversies in the church are really controversies about whether you're going to do it my way or or another way or God's way or your way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is what I would call an egocentric battle as opposed to a Christocentric answer. It's good. It's excellent. Yep. And we're all liable to that uh, defect. May I say, I can make that testimony. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, we're recording this conversation in... um, Lent, one of the seasons of the Christian year. I wonder if you'd comment a little bit about the Christian year itself and why you think it's important that we follow that. What does that help? How does that help us be Christ-like? Well, it's it's in a way it's a way of appropriation. Uh, when I was growing up in the church, I sang in the junior choir, and uh, I was also an acolyte until I went off to college. And one of the things that I remember in the junior choir is that we sang a certain hymn two or three times a year. Uh, Advent tells us Christ is near. Christmas tells us Christ is here. In Epiphany, we trace all the glory of his grace. Then three Sundays we'll prepare for a time of fast and prayer that with hearts made penitent we may keep a holy Lent. Holy Week and Easter then tells who died and rose again. In other words, that that story that that rhythm is a way of appropriating uh, mm-hmm. the life of our Lord. Uh, and I love that little hymn. Uh, it's wonderful. I've never heard that before. Uh, well, it's, it was in the 40 hymnal. It's not, <laughs> in the, it's not in the current one. And we don't have those three Sundays before Lent anymore. Yeah. Quinquagesima, Septuagesima, Sexuagesima. I don't think it was ever in the Broadman hymnal. I suspect, <laughs> that, I suspect that it was not. <laughs> but it's a wonderful way of remembering. And as you say, the, the, the cycle of the, the Christian year is a way of following Jesus well, it's throughout all, your life. It's all about formation. And that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about uh, uh, today is the, the formation that, that blessed me as a child because a seminary, your seminary, is about formation, mm. forming. Uh, and I think the facts of the matter are that we become what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the thing that strikes me about uh, about Lent uh, is that it's a time that focuses on uh, on our uh, our Christian living, our discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the colic for Ash Wednesday is Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that Thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all those who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts 
that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness Mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, I heard that collect. It was to be said every day during Lent. I heard it in the choir. I heard it as an acolyte. Uh, We have prayed it uh, all my life, and it points to the cross. Uh, It points to the grace and love of God that allows us to overcome by his grace the self-centeredness of our lives so that we can receive his grace and mercy. So Lent is a time to uh, to focus uh, on our discipleship. I had a went to a clergy conference years ago, and uh, Gordon Charlton, who was the suffragan of Texas and then sem- dean of the Seminary of the Southwest, began our clergy conference by saying, nobody learns from experience. You only learn from reflection on experience. Mm-hmm. And so Lent asks us to stop mm-hmm. and listen and reflect and focus. I know one of the things that uh, you do in the the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is called the Prayer of Humble Access. It's a part of the Book of Common Prayer, of Indeed. course, from Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Tell us what is the Prayer of Humble Access, and why why is that so moving well, for a Christian the, to enter the, into? The prayer of Humble Access is is said before the reception of Holy Communion. Uh, I know it by heart. We do not presume to come to this Thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to be fed by the body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Mm. Amen. Now, I slipped a phrase in there that was not right, so somebody listening who knows it will, will catch the old boy in his mistake. Uh, but that prayer I know by heart, uh, yeah. and that, that is what we said before we uh, went to the altar rail and then put our hands out into the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting yeah. life. You know, it's, it, it's a prayer that just sort of brings you into the presence it's of Christ. It's a whole with, story. Yeah. It's the, it's the it's gospel a, in a way. The, it's the gospel yeah. in a way. Uh, and you see, you can take that and turn it into rote. Mm-hmm. But if you make that an, an instrument of life, uh, that's an entirely different matter. And so it's, it's sort of like extemporaneous prayer or said prayer. Uh, I've heard extemporaneous prayers that, uh, that I thought could have been canned. I've heard printed prayers that had no life. Uh, and so I don't think either side of the fence is one is necessarily better than the other. But you see, that gathers it up. The whole faith community gathers that up. And it's not dependent upon me uh, to do that. And I like in the uh, in the present prayer book the sentence that the priest says before you receive communion, the gifts of God for the people of God. Mm-hmm. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I don't see that as a substitute for the prayer of humble access, but I see it as pointing to uh, a deep devotion. Bishop Salmon, I want want to ask you just a little bit about uh, theological education. We talked about formation. Right. And, you know, that's one of the goals I think our two schools share. Indeed. Because we put a strong emphasis of this is person-to-person, heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul. This is what we're about. We're not just about dumping information from a full mind to an empty mind. 
And uh, it's very difficult to do that in our current world uh, with uh, commuter students, with all kinds of distractions. Are there other places you would point to other than the Shota House? Are you really a pioneer? I guess I'm reaching out to you asking for saying, come over and help us. Well, I, th- I think that, uh, that everybody is, is trying to figure out ways uh, to do this teaching and formation in the culture that we live in. The uh, three-year program that we have uh, is a very deep formation program, not only a formation but of theological uh, teaching. Uh, and so we we are, have teaching in the Scripture. If you don't know the Scripture uh, in the gospel work, you're out of business. Uh, we also teach the fathers of the church. Uh, there's not anything that we're experiencing today that hasn't been experienced in the past. Uh, and there's no point in reinventing sin uh, and the answers to it. So uh, we, are, we teach the heritage uh, of, uh, of the church. Uh, we're looking at now a two-year program because mm-hmm. seminary is expensive. We also have a distance learning program of modules. In fact, some of your faculty have taught in that mm-hmm. in, the, uh, uh, in the summer. But we require a residency in, mm-hmm. in each week of, uh, of, a, uh, of a module because the, the living together is the uh, instrument that delivers and, and, and vitalizes the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if if someone were to say to me uh, about uh, theological education in general and some of the issues that uh, that it faces, uh, I would say, uh, besides teaching the faith, forming the person, one of the ways that we form the person to lead in in Christ's church today is every kind of issue that you will face out in the world, you face in the seminary. Mm. Uh, when I went there as acting dean some years ago, uh, I had the uh, maintenance people put up a chalkboard in the re- refectory. Uh, and I wrote on that chalkboard every time I heard a piece of gossip. I wrote it up there, and I wrote the name of the person who told me. And then I said, you can erase your name if you'll put the name of the person who told you. And so one of the things that we were interested in teaching is spiritual hygiene uh, a, a minister, a pastor, a priest uh, in a parish needs to preside over a community where it is, is spiritually vital and alive. Mm. And so often our communities look just like the world in, uh, in which we live. So we don't have to read a, uh, a, a book uh, about those kind of things. It goes on right under our noses. Yeah. And if we can take a picture of it so that we have to deal with it. That's great. I've never heard of that before, but I can see it would be effective. It is effective. <laughs> I did it in the parish. Uh-huh. And every and when I was in the diocese, I had a rule of thumb. And that was if you told me something about a third party, I would tell them that you told me. Uh, if you tell me something about yourself, I will take it to the grave. Uh, but this business of talking about others instead of to others violates the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you said that. That's a word we need to hear. You know, Beeson Divinity School, um, we, we, we use this phrase, soli deo gloria. It's kind of the theme of the right. school. Of course, we didn't invent that. Right. It, it was used by Johann Sebastian Bach on every piece of music he wrote. And it's a great theme of the Christian life, to God alone be the glory. Uh, does Neshota have, have a theme or a motto? What, what would you say summarizes the life and spirit of Neshota House Theological Seminary? 
Well, I would think the thing that that uh, uh, that forms us is the understanding that we are the mission, mm. that we were founded as as a mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read in some of your literature, uh, you're a missionary outpost on the frontiers of Western culture. That may originally have meant what we call now the Midwest. It did. Today it means uh, Western culture, which is the frontier yeah. again. In other words, the uh, the gospel needs to be preached uh, to the church uh, as well as to those who have never heard it. Uh, and uh, so the mission field has changed somewhat, but it's always the mission field. Every, every generation uh, requires conversion. Our time's almost up, but I wanted to ask one more dimension of what you do. It's very important for us to think about the world Christian mission. And how the gospel has spread around the world, how we are enriched by expressions of the church all over the globe. Uh, how do you think about the world Christian mission and what it connects with we're doing in theological education? Well, when I think about the world Christian mission, of course, uh, a good portion of the way I think about that has to do with the Anglican Communion. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, We are involved with bishops and archbishops all over the Communion. And we have uh, uh, some bishops in in Africa right now that we are working with to see if we can help them with theological education uh, because theological education uh, is so important in terms of the church. Uh, They they have had uh, teaching by catechists so often, uh, but formal education in the sense of, of deepening a teaching through the Scripture and the Father's uh, is uh, is needed, and so we are now negotiating with some archbishops in uh, in Africa about ways to network with them and to uh, and to support their mission. Uh, and uh, basically, we also have a connection with uh, uh, St. Stephen's House, Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a connection with uh, St. Vladimir's Seminary in uh, the Russian Orthodox mm-hmm. Seminary in. Uh, in um, New York City, yeah. uh, we we are interested in in, in networking, uh, so that uh, that our mission uh, not only is Anglican, but it's not narrow to just the United States and to our little section of the world. And so much of the vitality of of the church throughout the world, Anglican and otherwise, seems to be coming from outside our little yeah, sector. And, and and we have you know. students coming from Africa on a regular basis. And from me and Well, Bishop Salmon, it's just a joy to meet you and welcome you to Beeson Divinity School. I wish you every blessing in your work and your ministry at Neshota House and beyond. Well, God bless you. I'm excited to be here and to see what's going on in this wonderful place. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.